All right, all right, all right. Let's get fired up here. Maximum freedom. Read. Stay on target. Maximum freedom. Stay on target. Maximum freedom. Read Rothbard. <laughs> Hello and welcome once again to the actual Anarchy Podcast. We're back at it again. This is episode number three of our revamped podcast, Actual Anarchy Podcast formerly known as the Reed Rothbard Podcast. My name is Daniel, and with me is Robert, and we're still talking about the movie Captain Fantastic. We got through about the first third or so on the previous episode, and now we're going to go back into the trenches and go through a very uh, conflicted movie, I think. Wouldn't you say, Robert? So thick, so frothy, so heady, so luscious. Lots. Lots to talk about. Yeah, we didn't get very far into it on the first episode, so welcome back to this part two. If, you, if you're if you listening to this one for the first time and not listening to the previous one, please go back and listen to that first one, because we are not going to do any kind of recapping. We're just going to get right into it and uh, continue on as if we, we never stopped. Yep, so let's uh, let's pick it back up, and I think you've got to mark where we left off, and we'll move on. Okay, so Captain Fantastic, where we left off, we left our heroes. Um, they were climbing on a rock face, and the middle son had just hurt his arm. And then they were driving back on a bus, on the bus. Steve, driving back on Steve, and Dad's like feeling some pressure, and he starts giving this speech about how you can't win, don't even try, you just got to do what you're told. And then he says, fuck that. And he's like, we're going to save mom. Operation Save Mom is a go. And the kids all cheer. And they're like, what's up? So um, so then starts the road trip. We're going on this road trip across America. We're going from Washington down to like Arizona. And um, the very first kind of like road trippy type scene we get is there driving by some stores. And surprise, surprise, old Vigo's got something to say about those stores. He kind of goes on this little speech rant about consumerism. And I got the little, I got the quote here. He said, and I typed this out because this is kind of a point. We could probably talk about this a little bit. Our democracy is one of the brightest lights of social justice in the history of humankind. And yet most citizens engage in frenzied shopping as their primary form of social interaction. So what does that quote say to you, Daniel? That our democracy is one of the brightest lights of social justice in the history of humankind, probably harking back to, like, what, slavery being legal and then not legal, and what the human rights or civil rights being a good thing, which we've talked about in the past, we're not super fans of. And then he goes on to say, but yet most citizens engage in frenzied shopping as their primary form of social interaction, as if this is some sort of a bad thing, going out and shopping. 
buying shit you don't need, which you could make an argument, and I'm open to arguments about buying things you need or don't need um, and having, you know, shopping being a social activity. First of all, I have no problem with shopping being any kind of a social activity. Uh, I think that's greater than not, right? Going out and shopping alone is not the most exciting activity. It's more fun to go with other people. We're social animals. And, um, you know, whenever you say people are buying shit they don't need, well, you are making a judgment not only about that person but the thing that they're buying as if they don't need it. Well, you're making a judgment about that person's life. And, yeah, maybe they're making the wrong purchase. People make wrong choices all the time, but they're still the best person to make that choice. And at the time, they thought that that product, they valued it more than they valued the dollars that they're spending. And I'm, and me, I would I pref- much prefer to live in a place that is so wealthy that we can afford to just go buy shit instead of having to scrimp and save and only be able to afford the absolute essentials in life. I would much rather prefer to be in a place where everybody's got so much money, we don't even know what to do with it all. <laughs> so, Daniel, what do you got to say about this this quote here? Well, I thought you were going to go more into the rest of his rant, um, and I was going to say, preach it, brother. Oh, well, that, that was it. I mean, um, that was the main chunk that I that I wrote down anyway. There was a, it was a little bit longer, but that was the main thrust of what he was talking about, just that that Americans are, you know, they spend too much money on too many things that they don't need. Well, first of all, you're making a decision about what they need and what they don't need, but also that it's you're making a decision about, you know, well, anyway, I already said it. I already said it. I already you made my point. point. You made your point. Yeah, so uh, I think I took his his that that quote a little bit differently. Um, Good. I think that he was talking about yeah, democracy is great and it's a great tool for advancing social justice because democracy is the will of the people being um, translated into government action and we're constantly improving things. Uh, and that consumerism and capitalism are a detractor from that. And it's interesting that he says in your quote there that they interact with with each other in a social way by shopping. And from a Misesian and Rothbardian point of view, that's kind of correct. Like voluntary exchange is a way of working with other people to satisfy your needs and their needs and it is the glue that holds together society so it is a very social thing it's human action it's humans interacting it's creating that lattice work it's looking towards your own best interest and someone else's best interest and you meet in the you know you meet and you satisfy each other's wants with goods and services so I think that this guy read a little too much Galbraith and took it as all of these people are brainwashed and all of these companies are oppressing you by offering you something voluntarily. For those that don't know, Galbraith is the guy that basically says we're, we're slaves to advertising. Yes, and, and we're always buying things we don't need and 
we're doing it because we're we're seeing advertisement and subliminal messaging. And we're just like a little automatons that are being programmed. Right, and we should only want things that are like higher value in, in his perception and that there should be government programs in place to have appreciation for the arts and classical music and the right kind of books and literature. Right, so um, he's a technocrat. He, he wants to, everybody else to appreciate the values that he has. Right, and he wants to impose it on everyone else through the barrel of a gun, which is a very Maoist thing. He said that government power comes from the barrel of a gun. I don't think Galbraith would necessarily see that connection, but I'm sure you and I do. Indeed, I think that was Stalin, wasn't it? But yeah. Uh, anyway, I'm pretty sure it's Mao, but we, it's Mao? Can, okay. we, can, uh, we can figure that out in the show notes. Yeah, yeah. Or One you know, of us is right. Out right. One now. of us is wrong. It doesn't matter. <laughs> it was some horrific communist murderer. Indeed. Um, so, unless you have more to say on that, I'm going to move on. Uh, they're driving along. They continue on in the bus. And his middle daughter is describing a book. She's reading uh, Lolita. And the dad's like, well, that's not one of my prescribed books. What are you doing? She's like, well, I'm reading ahead. He's like, so, okay, well, what do you think about the book? And she goes, it's interesting. And the whole family kind of freaks out and says that the interesting is an illegal word. And dad calls it a non-word and that she's supposed to avoid it. Um, and that it, it basically doesn't describe anything necessarily. So then he has her get into what she actually means. And so then she describes the plot of the book. And he's like, well, that's just the plot. Tell us something meaningful about your analysis of the book. So I kind of had an issue with everybody freaking out about interesting being an illegal word. But I think their heart was in the right place in that, you know, you don't just regurgitate the plot of a book, but actually talk about how it makes you feel what your analysis of it is, the meaning behind it, that sort of thing. Yeah, that point, out? that point stuck out to me as well, but more in the I appreciated it because I think saying something's interesting is an easy way out. It's a lazy, intellectually lazy statement to make about something unless you're going to follow it up with, with additional information. But just saying something's interesting doesn't really give anything meaningful about it. Yeah, I agree, because it doesn't give you any real any meaning, because almost anything could be said to be interesting. Mm -hmm. So I think that was his effort, was to try to make them be more critically thinking, that he yeah. would push her beyond just saying what the plot is, and you know, give me how it made you feel, what is the analysis of what you're looking at, what does it mean to you? And I think that's right. a, a higher level of thinking that a lot of people don't really engage in, uh, especially in the uh, government schooling system. Right. Where it's mostly just regurgitation. Memorization and regurgitation on test day. It's true. So the next scene is the whole family has arrived at a bank and dad is getting some money out. And one of the kids asks if everybody is sick because everybody is so fat and fat like hippos. And the dad's answer is basically, well, yeah, everybody's kind of sick. <laughs> but it's not nice to make fun of people. 
we don't make fun of fat people and sick people. We just make fun of Christians. Uh, I thought that was kind of a fun scene. Um, is like one of those kind of fish out of water scenes where you have these people that are so in shape and really haven't been exposed to, you know, modern society, modern American society that seeing these out of shape, horrifically obese people is kind of a shock to them. Um, I think, and I think it would be, I think it was a very honest scene. I mean, obviously they're going for kind of comedic factor, but it was an honest scene where you're, everybody around you is in like, you know, peak physical condition all times. And it's just normal to you. And then to see the exact opposite of that. And you're like, well, what's, what's, what's going on here? <laughs> what's wrong with these people? Are they all sick? Uh, what has their life been like that's led them to this point? Yeah, it does lend itself to a veneer of his anti-consumerist message because he's looking at people out in the general public who are, you know, just consuming and not taking care of themselves, worried about the rat race, getting fat, overeating, buying crap that they probably, you know, don't need. But, you know, like you were saying, it's up to them. But for the children to be living where they were, as isolated as they were, yeah, it is that fish-out-of-water situation. Right. And then the next scene is one that I, as soon as I saw the, they were going out on a road trip, you knew the scene was coming. You knew that there was going to be an interaction between Johnny Law and the family. At some point, they're going to make some kind of conflict in that sense and the way they did it i thought was perfectly fine um so anyway here this is what happened they get pulled over by a cop who says you know license registration hey your taillights out and the dad's like very submissive yes i'm sorry thank you for noticing here's my license and registration then the cop looks in the bus and he notices the children and he's like no school today and dad goes not yet and so then the cop just invites himself on the bus Nobody says anything. He just walks right on. And he's looking around. And to get him out, I thought it was pretty clever. The kids start acting like like Jesus freaks or whatever. And they start talking to him about the Lord. And then they start singing about Jesus. And they circle him. And they make him feel as uncomfortable as possible, like they're trying to press their religion on him. And then the cop's like, okay, I've got to get out of here. I don't have time for this. Um... I don't know how I exactly feel about the scene. Um, I think that it was clever for the family to do it that way as opposed to being more overtly, you know, in your face, kind of aggressive, like I would be probably, or at least I imagine. I, I, I don't trust myself to not be that way anyway. Very much screaming about my rights and, you know, you're attacking me and that sort of thing. Where pause, they, 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 they offer a more subtle, kind of like judo approach to have this cop who just invites himself onto their property and then they, uh, get him out of there by just making him feel uncomfortable. What did you, uh, how do you react to that scene, Dan? Similarly, it, it really bothered me that the cop just went in and started snooping around. Yeah. Uh, me too. I think in, in Kapistan, this situation wouldn't have happened. Um, 
you know, there was no indication that he was speeding. It was about a broken taillight, and this guy's like kind of a dopey deputy type. Uh, right. He but, didn't. I mean, what was his what was his uh, probable cause to lead him onto the bus? I mean, the idea that these kids should be in school, that they're not in school, so it's some sort of child abuse or a truancy violation or something along those lines. Right, and those and those things do exist. Truancy laws in some places at some times. Yeah, it's education free and compulsory. There's no idea so good, folks. Yeah, idea so good you have to force them on people. Yeah, but I think that their response to it was good. It, it, I think they said, uh, "Remember your training." So I think that they planned for that to, you know, hey, if we come into this situation. This is what you do. You start acting weird like Jesus-y and make make the guy uncomfortable so that he'll leave. Like that was their plan. Yeah, that's right. He did say, this is your first test. Remember your training. He didn't specifically say what was about to happen, like go with plan B or C or whatever, alpha. But, uh, yeah, we didn't. we don't see it beforehand, their training in this regard, but we are led to believe that perhaps that they this is a situation that they have planned for yeah and, I think and at the end very, of the scene hmm? i think it was a very practical way to deal with the situation like you were just saying that you might be confrontational and i fear right. that i might be that way as well with uh, being pulled over i mean i've been pulled over in the past i've gotten a ticket or two in the past and i was always you know just very submissive let's get this over and done with and move on with my day but now, since I've become a anarcho-capitalist libertarian, I'm like, in my mind, I'm like, fuck you, motherfucker. Why, why are you fucking yeah. with me? But yeah. I, I also know that that's not going to get me anywhere other right. than, you know, worse, in a worse situation. It's just going to escalate, and I am not going to win that, that battle. Right. Because they can call back up and <laughs> demonize you and everything and anything in between. Um, yeah, I think their solution was good, and it's uh, it might be a good idea. Next time you're pulled over, ask the ask the cop. You know, as soon as he walks up, hey, have you heard the good word? <laughs> have you accepted Lord Jesus as your savior? Yeah, or, or whatever. You could make up you could make up any religion, honestly. Yeah, come up with your the, own. Yeah. So at the end of it, uh, when the cop walks out, the son says, "Power to the people," and Dad replies, "Stick it to the man," which we hear again later in the movie. But um, stick it to the man, very uh, a hippie phrase, I think, originated in the 60s. And the power to the people, um, I don't know exactly when it originated, but it's been a popular phrase for, you know, people revolutions and whatnot, communist revolutions, socialist revolutions, for a long time. Yeah, so with this scene, does it seem a little bit contradictory because earlier they're talking about how great Maoist Maoism is, and Trotsky and Lenin and Noam Chomsky and you know oppressive governments everywhere, and yet this bootlicker, or what would we call it, a police officer, a jackboot thug, a jackboot thug interacts with them, and they have a good plan to evade, you know, get him out of there. But then at the end mm-hmm. of it, they're like, oh, you know, thank God we got out of that situation. Well, which is it, guys? Do you like jackbooted thugs or not? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Mao's Cultural Revolution wasn't just a good idea. 
it wasn't just a, a, a kindly suggestion. <laughs> it was enforced at the point of a gun. Right, and that was his quote, actually. It was Mao. I looked it up, yeah. He says that uh, political power grows out of the barrel of a gun. No, he's not wrong. All right, so after that, um, after the police scene, we're treated to this other weird scene. I'm telling you, this whole movie is just so dense with just scene after scene, just inspired discussion. Um, The family is hungry, and so they stop, and the middle daughter, we get to see the middle daughter, she's got this kind of janky-looking toy bow and arrow, looks like, I don't know, looks like some kind of bow and arrow came from like a arts and crafts store <laughs> but she's using it um she's on the they're on this like farmer's land the land is obviously some sort of pasture land and there's like a, a, a group of sheep just standing there clearly some farmer sheep and her complaint about not shooting them she says well they're just standing there it's not it's not any kind of sport or doesn't feel fair i guess there's her complaint and the father so then they're back on the bus and they say, you know, I'm hungry. And he's like, well, somebody should have shot the sheep. So I don't know what, what makes these people think that they can just go on other people's property and kill other people's animals and <laughs> just take them. I, it, we'll get to a scene later on where they do a very similar thing, but it, it's such a modeled moral message in this movie. What is it? Is are they are they traitors? Are they are they capitalists? Are they communists? Are they thieves? Are they hunters? Are they just 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 poachers? What 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 is it? Are they just survivors and they don't care who they're stealing from? Even though they just got money out of the bank. It's not like they're starving. And even if they were, it wouldn't justify the theft, but I'm just saying they obviously have the means to not steal. But they are under the, you know, they're under the, um, their normal diet is, you know, freshly killed animals, I guess, is they, they supplement their diet with that. Like fresh vegetables they grow in their garden and, you know, fresh, fresh food that they, that they hunt. So this is what they're used to. But what makes them think it's okay? Like at one point they're driving along in the bus on the freeway and they're just like, we're hungry. Well, keep your eyes out for anything that's game. Really? You're just driving along on the freeway? And you think you're going to catch some... I mean, it is in the Pacific Northwest. You could see a deer running by. But that's not what happens. They stop in some farmer's land. <laughs> and it's not specifically shown that they're crossing, jumping over a fence or anything. Because they're in, like, some bushes. But those sheep are not just, like, wild sheep. It's just not, not the case. Dan, what, what were your thoughts on this scene? Yeah, they were definitely going to poach and steal somebody's property, and they didn't seem to have any qualms about it whatsoever. And yeah. it makes me wonder if someone else had come onto the land that they purchased, where they lived, out in the woods, if they would have had an issue with somebody coming on there and, and you know, killing a deer or taking some of their vegetables or, you know, whatever. Like Yeah. At what point is is it theft, and at what point is it considered community property? Just like the, you know, the socialist uh, ANCON issue of 
well, personal property is okay, but means of production is not okay, and wherever that line is is, is ever-shifting. Right. So when you have one sheep, it's not, but when you have ten sheep, it's perfectly okay, and you're hoarding the sheep, and it's okay for me to kill one? Right, yeah. I mean, I was glad that they ended up not shooting the sheep, but it wasn't for the for the right reasons. You know, it was like, oh, right. there's no sport in this or something, right? Right. And it, so, it uh, becomes clear in the next yep. scene where they go to the restaurant and they're all asking for, like, different menu items. And they're like, what's this? What's that? Can we have this? And the dad, Vigo, keeps saying, that's not actual food. That's not real food. No, we can't have any of that. And then they... They leave. Right. Okay, so let's get into this. Let me, yeah, let me describe that. So, yeah, they go to this restaurant. It's like a Denny's. And the kids are asking for this or that. And they're like, hamburgers? What's a hamburger? Can I have pancakes? Can I have hot dogs? And the dad's like saying, no, yeah. And then we need to leave. Well, why? Because there's no food on this, these, these menus. And then one kid asks, you know, what cola is. And he responds, poison water. So, yeah, so then they leave because there's no food on the menu. And what do they do, Daniel? Where do they go? They go to the grocery store. Supermarket, what's up? For Operation Free the Food. So what do they do? Oh, there's a gratuitous Franz shot in the scene. I didn't notice it the first time, but I noticed it the second time. Uh, Viggo Mortensen's walking around, and there's this gratuitous shot of all these um, bagels and muffins. And this is all like Franz stuff. Kind of cute. I used to work at France, so I noticed it. Oh, uh, so, yeah, Vigo's in the in an aisle, and he picks up a box of donuts, and he starts shaking, and then he falls and collapses. And this is a clearly planned operation where everybody knows their job, and everybody springs into action at the right time because the kid, the middle son, jumps over him, and he's like, oh, my no, my dad's having a heart attack. Call 911. And as soon as the kids are all had all escaped with all the food and gotten on the bus. You know, Viggo Mortensen, like, pretend, takes a pill or pretends to take a pill or whatever, and then he's like, oh, it's fine. I just didn't take my medicine. And then they quickly leave. So, yeah, this is, again, they have money. Why are they doing this? Why are they robbing? I mean, when I first saw it, and I was like, oh, no. Oh, no. Why? What are you doing? I couldn't get behind it at all. Uh, there's nothing that am I is it just because I'm like a voluntarist and I recognize the effort that went into all that food to get there and that's not their food to take. Is that what's stopping me from appreciating that scene? Because I think yeah, like these ancoms would be like, yeah, take it. They're oppressing you by by not giving you this, all the uh, the food that they have. There's enough food for everybody to have. Why not you just take it? Why not just give it away? It's really really bad argument. <laughs> Yeah, it's not a moral code that everyone could all live by simultaneously. Oh, just take what you no. want. Yeah, just take what you want. Because, yeah, nobody owns anything. Well, then nothing would ever get produced. You know, we'd all be back to subsistence levels of trying to provide everything on our own, and that's a very primitive way of living. Right. I mean, why why would I go to all the effort and trouble to make all this value only to have it all subject to theft and confiscation. There's just no incentive. So yeah, you're so right, I, we I, would all descend into anarcho-primitive 
and we have to provide everything we need for ourselves. No specialization, or at least very limited. Yeah, no division of labor, no specialization, no reason to invest in technology, capital equipment, no no reason to save anything, no reason to try hard, no reason to do anything. No. That's uh, the incentive problem there, socialists. Get back at us. Let us know yeah, how and to solve that. And don't just poo-poo it. It's a real fucking problem. It's serious. It's like one of the top issues. Beyond the whole point of who's going to, you know, shovel the shit and do all the shit jobs when everybody's getting paid the same. But, yeah, the incentive problem is just huge. And and from what I've seen, there's no answer to it. Yeah, the the previous answers, I believe, had been, well, we'll just re-educate people so that they believe in the greater good and putting forth their best efforts at all times and everyone will have enough because everyone will work hard. But it's you know, just everybody's just altruism, altruism. Yeah, you'll create new socialist man, but that is totally counter to human nature. Yeah, it really is. Human so the is the dad and the thieves, the whole band of thieves, they abscond with their plunder, and they stop at like some kind of like roadside picnic table. And the dad is grilling the kids on how they could be better thieves. And the kids actually have some pretty good ideas. They're talking about how, you know, their exit strategy was flawed. They all went out the same door. They all went onto the same bus. They didn't use the loading docks if anybody had stopped them, blah, blah, blah. They're actually, you know, they're, they're intelligent people, and they're applying themselves in a horrific way. Um, but, yeah, they'd make, uh, they'd make good thieves. So they take their plunder to this picnic table um, where they're going to celebrate, instead of Christmas, they're going to celebrate Noam Chomsky Day, which is like, I think they said his birthday was like December 6th or 7th or something like that. And they're like, it's not December 6th or 7th. And Dad's like, yeah, well, nah, we're going to do it anyway because, you know, your mom died. So Dad starts, you know, he he has them all close their eyes. And apparently, you know, you know, obviously, a sugar isn't a, a regular thing that they eat, so he has stolen a cake, and everybody's super excited, and they just all start munching on this cake. And then they, um, he gives all these gifts. Oh, I know. First, they they pull out the this placard. It's like the sign, and it's got like a picture of Noam Chomsky on it. And they start singing like Uncle Noam, and at the very end of the song, they go, "All hail." And they hand out gifts of uh, knives and uh, a bow to his oldest son and uh, the joy of sex to his youngest son. So what were your feelings and impressions on this scene, Daniel? Um, I have no problem. You know, I, I don't think Noam Chomsky is the greatest guy. He is a guy who is often featured in um, debunking libertarianism videos because um, he is very much a... He's of the opinion that you must have coercion in a society in order to force people to do things that they wouldn't otherwise do. Um, but yet in the, in the description of Gnome, Vigo says that he's like this guy that promotes freedom. 
And to me, those two things are mutually exclusive. You can't, on the one hand, say you're promoting freedom and change and whatever in the world and you're just awesome human rights. And at the other time saying that, well, there's got to be, you know, force and coercion by an authority in order to keep, you know, people in line. Yeah, so what I know about Noam, and I've been saving this line, is that uh, he's a cunning linguist, but he should stick to that. He oh, snap. He is a linguist. He's like a, he's a, he's an, intellect, an intellectual lecturer. Yeah, what were you going to say? I'm sorry. A professor of where? Oh, somewhere in New England. Um, yeah. I don't remember exactly where, but, but he's a linguist. And, you know, apparently he has some renown for that. But I think he's most well known for being an anarchist pacifist like very anti-war, very outspoken about that, and, and you know, actually has a lot of really great commentary on foreign policy and, and the mistakes that the United States and the United States military makes. And I, I applaud all of that. That's great. But he really needs to stay in his lane when it comes to uh, those issues that he's good at. And... You know, people look at him and he's great in that those two areas, and then they just assume that he's great in everything else. And that's one of those Rothbard's laws. Like everyone will specialize in the thing they're worst at, and for whatever reason, you know, I, I don't know exactly why that plays out that way. But Chomsky is, you know, he's an anarchist, but he believes in socialism. Well, you can't really have anarchism and socialism they are mutually exclusive like you were saying like yeah. opposites of each other and I don't understand how anarcho-communists and anarcho-primitives primitives, primitivists have any cogent basis of understanding of anything like how can yeah. you have freedom to do things yet need to impose a system upon people through force, how is that freedom? Right. And they're always whinging about capitalism being imposed upon them and oppressing them. So it's not yep. as if they don't understand the concept of something being imposed and something being oppressive, yet they can't seem to look in the mirror and go, well, the system that I'm advocating is actually an oppressive thing. Right. And the thing that I think is oppressing me actually isn't. It's actually serving me <laughs> at every turn. And it's actually just the result of leaving people alone. Yeah. Yeah, so we could we could probably do a whole episode just on Chomsky. Um we could probably learn a little bit more about him, but I think that's that's a good primer. Um we need to move on here. So um, the middle son, he's still upset. He's upset about his mom, and he's taking it out, and he's he's stuck. And we've, we've already talked about this a little bit, um, and we could probably move on, but I'm just going to, for continuity's sake, talk about this here. Um, the middle son is upset. He wants to be like the rest of the world and celebrate Christmas. And the father's like, let's hear your argument. If it's persuasive, we might change our minds. And the boy walks in a huff. And if you want to hear us discuss that more, you can listen to the previous episode. We get into that. But I'm including it here just for continuity's sake. 
because right after that, they finish their little Noam Chomsky celebration, and the family gets back in the bus, and they arrive in, we're not exactly sure, it's not really said, but they're heading towards like Arizona, um, and they get to the relative's house. Yeah, before, the, we, before we get there, uh, remind me, was it made clear at this point that the mother had killed herself? Yes, she she is confirmed killed herself in the phone call at the store. Okay, and then and then Vigo goes and tells the kids about it. But right. there was something that the middle son suspected or overheard a few months. Right, prior. we never get that, and we could talk about that later. That happens later on in the movie. But yeah, he he overhears um, the mother not being happy where they were living. Right, so thus blames blames dad. Thus blames Vigo for not moving the family out of the forest into like a normal house or whatever, where she could be better served. But Vigo's point was, listen, we both decided that together to live there. Um, she was manic depressive. One day she would be super excited about living there, and the next day she'd be super upset about living there, and you couldn't quite, I mean, which is it? You couldn't quite. Which 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 one are you supposed to believe? It's a it's not an easy position to be in. Do you just go day to day? Okay, we're moving. Oh no, we're not. We're moving back. You can't do that. So which it's it's, it's a very difficult position to be in from Vigo's point of view. Um, but I can also see the boy's point of view saying that you know the, the dad should have done more. I suppose because um, we we're not told exactly what he did or did not do entirely. We're kind of left to speculate a little bit about that. Right, but but he did um, allow, and I, I don't mean allow like he's owning her, but she was in a hospital seeking treatment for several months right. before she did this. So it wasn't as if he prevented her from going to get help. Right. No, I don't think that was the issue. I think the issue was just that the family lived in that space and that he blames her not wanting to at all times live in that space for contributing to her illness. Okay. So sorry to sidetrack us. Let's move on. So we arrive at the uh, relative's house. uh, I think it's his sister, his sister's house. Right. Yep. It's a, yeah, Vigo's sister from what I understand. And this is the big, real kind of clash of cultures scenario where you've got the normal kind of suburban family versus the, you know, the hippie commune survivalist family. And, you know, the kids are making fun of the, the hippie kids for not knowing anything. You know, how do you, how dare you do not know what, you know, what Nike sneakers are or, know what tv show is or whatever um so the kids are kind of feeling like you know ridiculed a little bit they're kind of feeling a little bit like i don't know kind of unfair right like someone's making fun of you and you don't know why but you feel like you should know why maybe and you're feeling kind of like maybe dad should have prepared us more for this maybe who knows but maybe that's how a little bit how they're feeling but also the kids um, I think handle it for the most part pretty well. Um, they're having dinner, and it's interesting. This 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 has not occurred to me. Um, 
because the Steve Zahn family, the sister, the sister's husband, basically accuses, and his wife, they basically accuse Vigo of sheltering the kids, right, from society and the world and um, not being able to, you know, um, empower them with the skills needed to survive, right, and get a job in the real world and that sort of thing. Right, like they need to go to school. Right, they need to go to a real school and so they could get a real job in the real world is actually how they put it. Um, but then it's shown very clearly, I think, in the very first scene at the dinner that it's Steve Zahn and his wife that are sheltering their own children from, you know, talking plainly, from talking plainly about what happened to Vigo's wife. Like he, Vigo, they're going, you know, one of the kids asks, what happened to Aunt, you know, I forget her name. And Steve Zahn starts kind of meanderingly answer kind of mincing about the issue uh well she she died and you know how did she die oh well you know some people get sick and she got sick and then whatever and then vigo just steps right in and goes she slid her wrist she killed herself and you know they're horrified but uh vigo is like well you know i don't i don't sugarcoat you know the world i you know i teach and you know whatever I'm not dumbing it down for my kids, but then Steve Zahn is like dumbing it down for his kids. He's like, you know, not cheating his children with respect as, you know, other human beings. Um, they're kind of like sheltering them. So I thought it was interesting that they're accusing Vigo of sheltering his kids when in fact they're the ones sheltering them, even though they think they're so progressive and, you know, living in the real world. Indeed, yeah, I, I see the same thing. And I wonder if this was one of the scenes where you were thinking of me, you know, 10 or 15 years in the future uh, with my kids because we speak to them as if they're adults for the most part. We don't hold back a lot of things. I mean, think in the last episode we were talking about how my firstborn is kind of fascinated with dead things and we talk about that all the time. You know, when, if she has a question, we answer it. Right. Right. And uh, so um, at one point, in the dinner, um, I think his youngest daughter or his youngest son, I can't remember, they kind of look similar, like asks, you know, if she can, or they can have some wine. And he goes like, yeah, sure. And he goes to pour it. And Steve Zahn kind of freaks out, or his wife freaks out. It's like, you know, that's not for children. And he's like, what are you talking about? Like, all over the world, you know, kids drink a little bit of wine. It's not a big deal. It's like an aperitif. And so then after... They freak out and they kind of leave. Um, he pours some wine for all his kids, and and then they have a nice toast to mom. I thought that was kind of fun. Yeah, and I think the two nephews were still there, and he kind of, you know, made the shush finger like, "Hey, don't don't tell your parents." <laughs> right. And those two kids were shits, man. They were they were super rude and uncultured and unknowledgeable about things and just little shits. And yeah, that, and then they flip them off as they're leaving. Those are those kids, they flip off the whole family in the bus. They're like, screw you. Right, right. But there, there's actually probably a scene you want to talk about prior to that, right? The uh, difference in the quiz of the kids. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we're going to get to that for sure. Okay, so um, uh, the next day, 
I've already mentioned this, like getting real schooling, real jobs, but I wanted to make this point. Um, Steve Zahn argues to Vigo that his kids need structure and stability. And if you watch the beginning of the movie, and maybe, you know, Steve Zahn's not privy to exactly everything that's going on, like the audience is, but there's nothing you would say about that, I don't think. I would never describe it as saying these kids lack structure and stability. I mean, maybe that their mother is no longer with them, but they can't really do much about that. But there's nothing, that life was nothing if not structured. Yeah, it was like your training starts in 20 minutes, you know, form, you know, get cleaned up and, and get into formation. It was almost military in that respect. Right. And they had reading lists. They had uh, books they were supposed to read, study questions. He had progress. He was like, oh, well, you're going to have this test in six days. Are you going to be able to finish that? And he asked the other one, what page are you on in that book? And she's like, oh, 463. All right, you got 200 more pages to go. I mean, he was on top of it, almost a little... Like scary how how involved he was in exactly where they were in their training and in their lessons. Yeah, I mean, can you imagine? I mean, the average adult parent in America taking that much of an interest in what their children are learning. I, uh, he seems like a superstar to me in that respect. I mean, he you know willingly took it on that responsibility, but um, by not like handing his children off to the state. But um, spoiler yeah, alert! He, he seemed like a he seemed like a uh, yeah. Spoiler alert! Let's not get into that just yet. But uh, uh, comparatively, he knew far more about what their his children knew and did not know, and where they were at in the world, and what they you know what their abilities and skills were than the parents of these two teenagers, who probably knew very little comparatively about Absolutely. their own children because. Because there's a scene that illustrates it that we're going to talk about right now. So, um, anyway, but before the, just before that, uh, the wife, Harper is her name, worries that the kids are going to get killed. And I think that's any parents, any parents worry that kids are going to get killed. And that's why you equip them with the skills you think they're going to need throughout life. Uh, would you say, I mean, they're, I, I guess you could make the argument that they're in a slightly more precarious situation, like in that you know they're not they're not like right next to a hospital, um, you know they don't have all the whatever tools in case anything little thing could happen. Um, they do rock climb, but I mean they're all secured harnesses and whatnot. I mean, yeah, things could happen, but things could happen walking down the street. I mean. Was he was he um, taking greater risk with his children than other parents? I don't know. I think there's an argument to be made both ways. In one sense, I think he's he. First of all, I don't think you can say he wasn't training his children um, the best he knew how. Now, was he necessarily preparing them to live in the world as it is, as opposed to like an ideal world? I don't know. Um, you could argue, and that comes to the whole homeschool, public school debate about, you know, socialization and how, you know, how he's making like these weird, awkward kids and how they feel weird and awkward around other people. Is that necessarily a good thing or a bad thing? Uh, in a second, I want to talk about how, anyway, okay, okay, I'm getting ahead of myself. Oh, sorry. Let's, okay, we're talking about this, the demonstration scene. And this really illustrates the difference between the homeschool kids and 
the public school kids. Right, and, and this so, was in, in response to Harper saying that she was, he was putting his kids in danger, that they needed to go to school to learn, to be able to be prepared for real life and get a job. But he right. al- she also claimed that he was subjecting them to child abuse. Right. And so his response was what you're about to describe. Right. So he calls down the two boys, the two teenager boys, Steve Zahn and Harper. And he asks them what the Bill of Rights is. And the first boy says, um, is that like what you get when you buy something? And the second boy, who's like in high school, he's older. The first boy is like 13. I think the older, the other boy is like 15 or something like that, or 16. And the other boy says um, something to do with the government or something like that. And so then he calls down his youngest daughter, who is eight years old, and he says, you know, what? Describe what the Bill of Rights is. You know, what is the Bill of Rights? And she starts. She starts. Responding verbatim, you know, the first, the first, um, the first part of it just starts reciting it, and he's like, no, 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 don't just recite it. Tell me what it is, what it means, what it talks about. And she starts to describe it and saying that without it, we'd be more like China, because it grants like freedom of speech and this and that. And from an anarchist perspective, I would differ greatly. Um, a piece of paper doesn't guarantee anything. <laughs> Um, you know, uh, G- Germany had a constitution. It didn't protect them from Hitler. Um, but for what it is, it does illustrate that this eight-year-old girl knew far more about the question that he asked the three of them. Um, then he goes on to ask her about the 2010 Supreme Court decision on Citizens United. And the girl says that um, it granted corporations the same rights as people, so there's no spending limits on candidates, which means that the country is ruled by corporations. And at that point, um, Harper goes, okay, 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 we get it, we get it. Very impressive, all of you. And then that kind of like kills the issue. And they kind of, they're kind of like, um, accept that he has taught his children plenty good. And that's, and that's basically... Um, true across the board for homeschoolers. Um, I don't know what the latest facts and figures are, and it's true that it, you generally. I mean, we had we had homeschool kids that would come in in high school. Uh, they generally were advanced, far above what we were doing, but they were a little bit socially awkward and weird, um, which basically just made them kind of like me, I guess. Not necessarily super advanced, but socially awkward and weird. Um, but I think across the board, in general, homeschoolers are more educated. Stop me if I'm wrong, Daniel. I, I've seen similar statistics about that as well, but you never know. I mean, there's lies, damn lies, and statistics, and you can always lie right. statistics, but who knows, but... Uh, right. I think that there's plenty of other reasons to keep children out of government schools. And, in fact, I consider that a form of child abuse. Right. Yeah, and, the family, and the movie doesn't get into that argument, but we can. Because they make the argument. I mean, later on in the movie, the son, he just wants to go to college. 
and the dad is like, well, you already speak six languages, and you're already high level in physics and mathematics and blah, blah, blah. And he's like, I don't care. I'm, I'm a weirdo freak, and I don't know anything if it doesn't come out of a book, and I want to go to school. Yeah, it's the Will Hunting argument. Right. What does the Which, Sistine Chapel you know, smell like? I don't know. Right. I mean, I if, you, if you want to go to school, I mean, schools are generally – I mean, they are a market force in a sense. But uh, what you actually learn, and you do get socialized a bit. I don't know if that's for good or for bad, especially these days um, in today's social justice warrior um, universities. But you could argue that they are essentially just gold star factories that say, hey, this person has gone through these hoops, and then therefore you should probably hire this person as opposed to another person who hasn't gone through all these hoops. Not necessarily that you know anything, but you've just you've you've run through these hoops, and we're going to put some gold stars on your forehead. Yeah, I think there's a lot to be said for that. I, I think there are some statistics out there that indicate that some rather large percentage of high school graduates cannot even read at a third grade level. I don't have you know the information in front of me. I don't know the veracity of it, but it wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. Indeed, like, and we could get into an argument and talk about how, you know, since they're government schools, there's no incentive for them to get better, yada, yada, yada. They just ask for more money, which doesn't necessarily achieve anything. Yeah, they, they get rewarded yeah. for failure. Like, oh, well, we need more money to be able to do a better job. Yeah. Kind of the modus operandi there. Uh, right. Before we move on, I want to touch back a little bit on the the little girl saying that without the Bill of Rights, we would be like China. Uh Well, which is it? I mean, the one son is a Maoist. He's a big fan of China. He's a big fan of totalitarianism. Sure is. Yeah, the the movie has nothing if not a lot of contradictions. (laughs) And isn't she the one who was building the shrine to Pol Pot, who was also a totalitarian, who would murder her for being able to recite the Bill of Rights or wearing glasses. Right. So yeah, it's uh, lots of contradiction. Indeed. So, okay, anything anything else on that? No, I think we can move on. Let's okay. Keep moving. So after they've demonstrated that the kids are, um, you know, smart. Oh, there is one scene where the kids are playing video games and they're horrified at the killer instinct, which is kind of interesting. It's not super interesting, but, you know, it's kind of a fish out of water. They're looking at this, you know, horrific violence on the TV. Um, I guess they're okay with it, you know, when you're using it to actually hunt and survive and whatever, which I would be more in support of. Um, there is an argument to be said that, you know, violence, and you see it, it tends to desensitize you. Um, but at the end of the day, we all have self-ownership, and just because you want to commit a crime and say, well, I saw it on TV, it's no, that's no excuse. I'm sorry. Yeah, this, this highlighted another contradiction for me because they were watching the two boys play this violent video game, and they were shocked and horrified by it. Yet yeah. they all seem to harbor these ideologies that are in support of totalitarian regimes that had things like struggle sessions and cannibalism and, mm-hmm. you know, corralling people and murdering them 
putting them in re-education camps uh, or, you know, having botched planning, central planning that led to starvation and famine. Uh So to think that their political ideology was all about murder, uh, whether they uh, agreed with this assessment or not, but they kind of would have to be aware of it, right? I mean, it's, it's well known that Mao was responsible for at least 60 million, possibly 100 million deaths. He yeah, I don't know how you can look back at Mao and romanticize him and just look at the good things, quote-unquote good things. Right, um, yeah, there was the, the Great Chinese Famine, there was the Great Leap Forward, there was the Cultural Revolution, there were struggle sessions, which was basically public berating and beatings, and you must admit to alleged crimes. And they were reducing people from humans to, you know, dehumanized uh, pieces of meat. Like they could just do whatever they wished. And right, because it it's all about the collective and not about the individual. Right. And and so to, to have at least one member and possibly more members of this family be fans of this is... Very contradictory to the actions and uh, the other things that are displayed in, in the movie. Yeah, I, I understand that a lot of, um, you know, the hippie types, which I've already pointed out, is kind of weird, doesn't really fit in time-wise. I mean, these people are like 40s, they're born in the 70s. So they missed, I mean, the, the mom's favorite song is Sweet Child of Mine by Guns N' Roses. <laughs> and that came out in like 1987. Um, but, um, yeah, to... to what was I going to say? Something about socialism. Um, damn it, I lost it. How great it is. Yeah, it's just the bee's knees, and it's super cool. I mean, well, it's associated with hippies, you know, and I don't want to generalize too much here, but... Communal living. Yeah, it's communal living. It's everybody taking care of each other. You know, it's yeah, to each according to his need and, you know, feel good taking care of each other, that kind of thing. It goes against... Like we've talked about human motivation, but um, human being, you know, hippies generally aren't the the most productive. I guess I could say. I mean, a lot of the hippies, you know, went on to go and have perfectly fine, you know, productive careers. But um, there are also a whole lot of hippies, you know, that kind of just retired and went on the dole. And anyway, I don't want to disparage people too much, but. I can see why it's an attractive philosophy for a lot of people because it is like a feel-good philosophy. You know, you're being oppressed. That's the reason why you aren't succeeding. Um, and you are owed stuff. Yeah, it offers an explanation to why they haven't achieved more and also comforts them with, well, you're entitled to certain things. Right. So it absolves them a lot of, perso- of, a lot of personal responsibility in those two respects. Indeed, which, yeah, is, is more about the collective and less about the individual, which is, I think, maybe the point you were talking about with uh, China. Yeah, but, yeah, um, it's weird that these rugged individualists are also all about the collective. And I wish that the movie had taken more time to explain their philosophy, since philosophy seemed to be kind of one of their core reasons for doing what they were doing. Yeah, they seem but, to oh well. claim to have certain principles 
and to be, you know, very well read and analytical and intellectual. And maybe it's just my lack of understanding on this issue because, you know, most college campuses, all the professors are similarly well-educated and articulate and well-read, but they're also predominantly socialist and left-leaning. So it, it's not necessarily a factor of intelligence that is a result of, you know, falling into the socialist trap. Mm-hmm. It just does seem weird because they were also so, you know, individualist in their own right. Well, should we talk about how the family unit is kind of a socialist unit? A lot of people and a lot of family, you know, you grow up and you have your your family is taking care of you. You're you're nourished and you're given free things by your mother and father, and you all share in whatever the family has a lot of the time. So it's kind of like this little social unit. So the state is just kind of an extension from that once you leave the family unit. Yeah, maybe an explanation as to why a lot of the younger generation are, you know, predominantly a bigger portion of of the young people were supportive of Bernie Sanders. Because you're right, it's an extension of growing up and everything's provided for you. Like, you didn't really have to work for a lot of things. Like, you know, my kids are three and a half and one and a half. And, you know, there's... The, the older one's starting to get some chores and we're starting to implement a little system where she does certain things and she gets rewarded for that. But prior to that, you know, she's hungry, she gets fed. She needs right. a diaper change, diaper gets changed. Like she, so needs she had needs and they were being met. Yeah, free of charge. Yeah. Now, uh, she, she's also, you know, in, uh, she's wearing cotton underwear. She's been potty trained, so I don't want to like say incorrectly that she's in diapers now, but I'm saying throughout her life, since she was born, she had all these needs just magically resolved for her. Right. And that just kind of continues on into adulthood unless it's kind of nipped at some point. Generally, you know, when you get out into the world and you have to start providing, that that those kind of things can get resolved but for some reason especially with this you know intellectual cover these ideas just get propagated and continued so yeah good times and it's kind of resulted in the the social justice warrior safe space universities that we see and the people that are coming out of them with the the new feminism and such fun things yeah, and what's so ridiculous about a lot of that is that you can be anti-white male without a problem and still be considered a social justice person. Like, I'm, I'm looking for it now, but somebody posted in here. Oh, here it is. Here is a, a wife of a person in a group I know, or I'm part of, who says, in a political science class, the professor asked, is it okay to punch a Nazi in the face? This is the same thing we were talking about earlier. And uh-huh. his conclusion was yes. So this college professor is, is arguing that yes, it's okay to preemptively punch someone in the face for their beliefs if you disagree with them. 
Where's the where's the line in that? What if <laughs> do you do you believe that you should um, that you own that 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 sandwich? Oh, you do. Well, I don't think you do. Punch. Right. It gets better. It gets better. So okay. So you know they're teaching kids that it's okay to physically assault someone if they believe differently. And then one kid responded and was like, "What are you talking about?" And it was a white kid. And the professor goes, "What's your name?" And the kid says, my name's Sebastian. Professor responds, yeah, a common name for a common white guy. Your points are not valid. Wow. This is a college professor. Yeah, that's, um, that's what you're paying for. <laughs> if I was that kid, I'd be like, I'm out. You're not getting any more of my money. This shit needs to die due to market forces. I mean, these things are propped up by governments, but if this is what's being taught, people just need to stop giving them your money and they will die. They will wither and die as they deserve, or they will better serve the market by actually teaching them something. They need to be able to be held responsible to market forces. This is how government fucks shit up. But maybe these ideas are popular. Is this, is this a thing that people want to learn? That it's okay to go preemptively punch someone in the face? Because you disagree with what they think? This is, this is the thought police. This is what this is. This is, this is the jackbooted thug saying, it looks like you've had a bit too much to think, and starts stomping on a face. Yeah, yeah. A it boot is, on the neck. It's the struggle session, but not from a top-down perspective. It's more of a groundswell. Yeah. Right. This isn't like organized. This is just individuals going well it's soon to be organized probably hopefully not held in like stadiums yet yeah i wonder if there's um it seems to be that there's a rise in the uh toxicity in the left in the last couple of years and especially since donald trump's phenomenon and the election and they've been they've been raising their uh level of agitation and violence uh-huh. and a lot of the things that they're doing are a continuation of the things that people were sick of that actually got Donald Trump elected, and they're just doubling down and increasing it. And I I wonder if that is going to boil over at some point if they keep this up. Yeah, it's a real lack of self-awareness. I don't know. Like There there was another person who said... Probably going to get worse before it gets better. Yeah, so... There's a person who, not in this group, someone that I'm, you know, vaguely friends with on Facebook. And she's very Bernie supporter, very socialist leaning. And she was saying something along the lines of, how am I supposed to feel and maintain my sanity when there are actual Nazis in the White House? Yeah. And I screenshotted that and I put it in the group. It's a private group, secret group. Right. And I said, my comment to it was, well, stop acting like one for starters. Because <laughs> it really is like the Nazis, you know, didn't accept any dissent. They would pile on people. Uh, there was no, you know, no resistance to it was, was a, a possible thing. And that's what the left is doing now. Like, I would never jump into the fray of any of these people on 
you know, posting all this bullshit about how Obamacare is so amazing and a million people are going to lose their coverage. Like all of these feel good but non-thinking memes and posts that a lot of the progressive types are, po- are putting up. And I don't know mm-hmm. if it's a, it's a factor of because I was in Seattle for, you know, my 20s and so a lot of my friends are in a very progressive city. And that's why it is that way. I, I don't know. But it is very hard to see that and not say anything. But I also know if I did, I would get piled on by a 100 people telling me I'm a Neanderthal, idiot, asshole, mean-spirited, racist, bigot. Yeah. All for it's one freedom. All for suggesting that freedom might be a, a, an appropriate response to to the situation. And that just betrays how they have no argument. I mean, when you resort to name calling as the first tactic, you really, you really have no argument. You, you say some bullshit, and when someone questions it, you go, "Well, you don't believe in it because you're retarded or a, a, a bigot or whatever." You really have. It's yeah. Anyway, it's they have an undefensible position from what I can see. Uh, yeah, and, and I'll be the first to admit that I. I don't think I have all the answers and I wish that things were more top of mind and came more quickly to me in response. You know, like if I'm in a debate, it's often difficult for me to come up with all of the appropriate responses that I I know are in there somewhere. Tom Woods Classroom. Yeah, Tom Woods Liberty Classroom. Click on the (laughs) link on our page. Uh, If you go to anarchy, actualanarchy.com, you'll currently be redirected to readrothbard.com, which is another site that we run. Click on the Liberty Classroom link, and you'll learn all about all the Tom Woods uh, provided teachings of Constitution and the how to debate status. How to debate status. Now he's got another a, a group of professors that also have created courses for that, so it's really good stuff. So click on that, support our show. But now back to the show because we got to get through this. We're almost done, right? Almost done. With no, that? Daniel. Are you crazy? This movie's just getting started. Right, no, we're about, we're round. about, we're a little past halfway done. All right, rapid fire round. Let's fire him off. No, 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 no. We we might we might split this into three parts. But um, okay, so the family has left the the relative's house and they go back on the road, and they make a rest stop, and the oldest son is out doing some yoga, and like a a modern like young girl. Like he meets her, she's like swinging on the swing set, and they talk. And they're talking for a while, and he feels frustrated about not knowing more about pop culture and TV because she like makes like a, a Star Trek reference. And it kind of occurred to me that he's frustrated about not knowing more pop culture and TV, which basically just means that he's like an old person. He just means like he's me. He's just he's removed from pop culture and TV, and I don't know anything about current pop culture and TV. I'll watch like a current Jeopardy show, and they'll have something about current TV or music, and I'll have no idea about whatever is on there. Um, but he feels frustrated about that, um, and he she asks him questions about his family, and he starts lying to her about it, uh, seemingly because he's ashamed. He says that his mother's in the, the government and that his father's writing a book and they're from France. Um, so it's clear that he's not fully comfortable at who he is and where he's from and what his family is. 
Um, then there's kind of a comedic moment, kind of a cringe-worthy comedic moment. Uh, they get really friendly, and they start making out, and it's getting late, and so he's walking her home, and the girl's mother pops out, and um, she's like, I don't know what you guys were doing. And he starts launching into this really cringeworthy speech where he says, and I quote, the endorphins running through my body were like dolphins through my bloodstream. <laughs> Classic line. Classic. And then he goes on to propose marriage to the girl. And this is, of course, so over the top that uh, the mother and the daughter uh, laugh it off as a joke. And he's able to escape with some dignity um, as just like a comedian. <laughs> But it really does illustrate how out of touch with the, the, the modern culture that the kids are. So I guess if you are on the side of, um, you know, the kids need to be socialized in the world and that he's actually like some sort of child abuser by keeping them from that, this kind of helps that argument a little bit. Daniel, what do you have to say about that? Yeah, it was indeed cringeworthy. Uh, doesn't he end up proposing to yep. her in front of his, her mom? Sure does. <laughs> and they they laugh it off as if he's just being a funny guy. Yeah. But he was being very literal. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, he meant it. And yeah. all they had done was make out for a little while. Right. And I, I think, and maybe this is me reading into it, but I think he had a premature J, EJ. He did? I, that's how I read it, because he had sort of a, a a visceral response to the making out. Oh, like well, a little I, mean, I didn't pay close enough attention. It could have been. Could you could be right about that? Could be right. I don't know if that's um, totally legit, but that's what how I read it, and maybe that's just me harkening back to my younger days when uh, the girl got close enough to me. I was super excited about it, and pop goes the weasel. <laughs> All right, we just learned something about Daniel. Good, good deal. That, that was long, long ago. Now I'm sure celibate. <laughs> <laughs> so totally different totally different all right so the family leaves that rest stop and they wave goodbye to the son waves goodbye to the girl and they arrive at the church where the ceremony is going to take place the next day um so we get them walking in on the service like they're there early i don't know why they're walking in just to, like cause a scene they cause they walk in later but they yeah, walk he's in. Wearing, he's wearing his fancy um, pimp suit from the 70s, and it's, of course, bright red because he's a commie. Yeah, so I actually written down here, the family comes looking in, walking in looking like baller pimps. <laughs> and all these crusty wasps are look, just look horrified. Um, so the preacher is talking about, you know, he's giving the standard preacher eulogy where I didn't get to know so-and-so, but... I wish I had, because she seemed like a really swell lady. It's like the standard pastor lines. Um, and he mentions that she loved her husband, and so Vigo takes that as his cue to get up on stage. And she kind of lays the smack down on the whole ceremony. Um, he talks about how his wife believed that organized religions were the most dangerous fairy tales ever invented, designed to elicit blind obedience. And 
I would take issue with the most dangerous fairy tale. I think authority is the most dangerous fairy tale. But I think the church is somewhat complicit in that, in that they are also designed to elicit blind obedience because they have a they don't enforce their dictates with violence these days so much. Um, certainly in the past they did, um, but at least you can say that joining a church is voluntary. They don't go out and claim, hey, you live in this area, so you must belong to this church. Um, but they do definitely elicit pressure on their members to continue being members because it is a business and they require funds. And um, since they're in the business of selling goods that they don't have to pay until you die, <laughs> the, you know, the pressure is more on just uh, making them feel good until they do die. Anyway, it's, it's a good business to be in. You don't actually have to provide products and services other than comfort. Anyway, um, what did you think about his little uh, organized religion speech, Daniel? Um, I thought it was, it was pretty good, uh, and I think you were alluding to the most dangerous superstition. That's the Larkin Rose book, where he talks about how the most dangerous belief is the belief in authority. And uh, speaking of Larkin Rose, we were talking earlier about how China and the Soviet Union and a couple of other very totalitarian regimes had constitutions of their own that apparently guaranteed the rights of their citizens. But, of course, they were disregarded, very similar to how they're disregarded here, how the Constitution is disregarded here. And he made a film uh, called It Can't Happen Here, which compares and contrasts the constitutions from those countries to the one here and all the horrific things that occurred in those other places throughout history with democide and hundreds of millions of deaths. And so I'll, I'll link that on whatever page we end up posting this show to so that you'll have a link into... Uh, some of the Lark and Rose work because he's been a big influence on me and I think, Robert, you'd say the same. Indeed. So after his little speech on organized religion, he continues, he pulls out uh, his wife's will and he starts to read it and he gets to the point where he talks about her wishes to be flushed down a toilet, her, her ashes to be flushed down the toilet and the whole crowd gasps. And then at that point, um, like some ushers or some some kind of people escort him, forcibly remove him from the premises. And he's like, wait, I'm not done. Hey, why don't you respect her will, blah, blah, blah. Well, they just, they just throw him out. So he's sitting outside the church. And I think the family kind of follows him out, but they don't show that. They just they cut to the family and Vigo sitting outside. Um, and then the um, the grandparents and everybody else coming out when the ceremony's over. Um, did you have any issue with the dad being forcibly removed from the church? I had an expectation that with all of his combat fight, like hand-to-hand fighting training that mm-hmm. he gave the kids, that he would have utilized some of it. And that was just an expectation from you know, a foreshadowing of them going through that in the beginning of the film, and then this confrontation physical altercation occurs and he's placid about it. So I was a little right. bit surprised about that. 
Uh, it was a, you know, it's a private building, uh, and the security wanted him removed, but I think that they were unjust in wanting to remove him. Like, they were disrespecting the will of the person who was dead. Like she said in her will, she wanted specific things to happen, and they disregarded those wishes. And it, it turned out that uh, she was actually a lawyer for many years and quit the practice to go move out into the woods with, with the family. So I would, I would venture to guess that whatever will she did put into place would have been a fully recognized will within the you know, current government apparatus. Mm-hmm. So I have no idea why that was not, like, used or more promoted. I, not that I agree with, you know, a government apparatus should be in place to enforce something, but the fact that there is such an apparatus, why was it not utilized? Right. Yeah, to be clear, she was a Buddhist, and she saw her Buddhism as a philosophy, but she didn't believe in the organized religion. Um and so she wanted her death to be more of a celebration of dancing and singing and kind of honoring her life and like with humor and that sort of thing instead of the stuffy um, Christian burial putting, putting, being put and rotting in a pine box um, under a, a golf course is how he explains it. Right. Um, yeah, although he did say that she would appreciate the humor of the um, – the pastor not even knowing her, but him being the one eulogizing her. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so, and, and uh, I think you said already that she wanted to be cremated and they were going to bury her in the coffin. Right. So, yeah, it, it didn't... I mean, yes, the grandfather was grieving and the grandparents, you know, they're grieving. They just lost their only child. But wouldn't you want to honor their your child's wishes? I mean, doesn't that... I would. Even if you disagree with with their lifestyle or with their beliefs, you know they obviously believe in different things. One, they're obviously some sort of Christian, and she was a Buddhist, and she lived out in the the forest, and they live in this house. But wouldn't you, as a just as a parent, wouldn't wanna wouldn't you wanna honor their memory by doing as they asked? I mean, this is it's a pretty pretty fundamental thing. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Maybe, I, maybe I'm not a parent, so I can't really say. But I mean, if your if your child, you know, grows up and believes in something you don't necessarily believe in, but they die, wouldn't you want to? Wouldn't you want to honor their wishes? Yeah. I mean, the only thing I can think of is that they thought that maybe she became a Buddhist because of this guy, this Ben guy, Vigo, and that she was manic depressive and ultimately killed herself. So it's hard to know what was rational and what wasn't. Mm. And maybe mm-hmm. they despised him and maybe blamed him similarly as how the middle child blamed him. And so right. they thought yeah. that they could disregard it, the wishes. Right, yeah. At one point the grandparent does say that, you know, to Vigo, that you're the worst thing that's ever happened to this family. Um, I don't know how, mu- how much I, they could actually blame on him, how much really rests on his shoulders, her sickness. I mean, come on, she she has a serotonin problem in her brain. You can't, I don't know how much, well, anyway. Okay, so, so the family comes out of the church, and this is the first time the grandparents get to meet the kids. And the grandparent basically says, you know, they meet the kids, 
and he says, you know, you, you're not coming to the the ceremony, the rest of the ceremony at the at the burial site. And Dad's like, you know, yeah, yeah, we are. He's like, if you go, I'll have the cops called on you. And good luck, you know, they'll believe me and whatever. Um, and so Dad's like, well, I'm going, and my kids are coming with me. They're my kids. Um, so the next scene is they're driving in the procession, and they're about to turn into the cemetery. And Dad really wants to go and rescue Mom. And the kids, they want to, but they're worried about the cops coming and taking Dad away. So this is like an emotional scene where the kids don't want to lose Dad to the police. So they tell him, you know, we don't want to lose you too because we just lost Mom. So please, let's call this off. And that convinces Dad. So he pulls away and they don't go to the burial. Um, so then they stop at a rest stop again and it's at night and the middle son is upset and he's throwing some rocks at a basketball hoop and he's saying, you know, dad's not that great. Um, and he storms off and, um, then the oldest son goes on board the bus and he gets the acceptance letters from the colleges. And he tells his dad finally that he's been accepted to all these Ivy League colleges. And this is the first dad's learned about this. Dad's like, whoa, you've been hiding this from me. And he's like, well, it was mom's idea. Mom helped me do all this. Well, at first he was very impressed by it. Yeah, he was very impressed. But then he argues that, you know, you already own, you already speak six languages. Um, you already know you can learn anything you want to learn. And, but then the kid says, you know, I know nothing. If it hasn't been written down in the book, I'm a freak, blah, blah, blah. We've talked about this. Um, so unless you have more to say, we can keep moving on. Yes, no? Uh, well, yeah, he says that the mom was the one who was helping him do it behind Dad's back. Right. I, I have no problem with that. I, I was kind of surprised that Vigo wasn't a fan of him going to college, the socialist bastions that they are. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And at this yeah. point, he's an adult. I mean, he's already said at the very beginning of the movie, he's like, you know, the boy is dead, you're now a man. So what right do you have to say about any of it? The kid wants to go to school. I mean, the man wants to go to a school. The man can go to a school. I mean, I would argue with him necessarily that you don't necessarily need to spend all that money to be indoctrinated in whatever socialist bullshit. But if that's what you want to do and you want to get those gold stars on your forehead, you know, I can just, you know, maybe persuade you not to go or just explain what I, my position, but I got no right to stop you or force you to stop you. Yeah. We're already with, with our kids. Um, Hazel actually told me the other day that she wants to go to school and, you know, cause she's been seeing things about school in the shows that she watches. Uh-huh. And I try to explain to her, well, you know, you can ultimately do what you want, but I'll try to advise you as best as I can. And you can make the ultimate decision, but, I don't think that it's something that is good for you. And I went into some reasons and, you know, she's three and a half, so she's not going to fully understand that just yet. But I think that, you know, eventually when the time comes to it, it'll make sense to her. That's my hope. Right. That's your hope. That's, you got to have hope. So, um, the youngest son comes out of the bus and gives Vigo a note 
basically like I ran away note. And it turns out that the middle son, his name is Relian, has run away to the grandparents. So Vigo packs up everybody in the bus and drive up back to the grandparents' house to get him back. And um, he goes into the house and he says to the family, you know, you all stay out here. I'll go in and get my kid back. Um, he walks into the room and it's clear that Relian wants to stay with the grandparents. Um, Vigo tells him that that isn't possible. You're my son. You're coming with me. Now, at this point, before anything else happens, where are you at in this situation, Daniel? Do you think, I mean, this is a kid who's clearly established that he wants to be in a place. Does he have the right to say that? I think he does. I think Vigo's wrong for saying, no, I'm going to force you to come back. Yeah, this is a tough one. Like, at what point is a a child, like, of age to be able to make decisions of their own? And I think Uh certain things um, they can make decisions on at different ages or stages, you know? Like, deciding if you don't want to live with your existing parents is a big deal. Like, they might be able to decide if they can watch a certain show, uh, and that's much lower on the scale. But I, it seems to me that the Relian kid, he was, what, probably 12, 13, something like that? Yeah. He was probably at a point where he could make such a decision, but he was also quite emotional and would maybe make some rash decisions that he would later regret. So it's really a difficult situation that I hope I don't have to encounter with my own kids. Right. You know, I in in talking with my three and a half year old, even tonight, I was like, uh, we were talking about the house we live in, and she's like, can I can I move out when I'm five? And I'm like, no. I mean, when you're like 18 or 19, it's probably a good idea. And she's like, well, what about if I'm 55? And I'm like, yeah, you can definitely move out when you're 55. <laughs> yeah, you know, so she she has no real concept of what these numbers mean just yet. Uh, but uh, it, it is a thing. Like, what is the age of, of consent in a legal sense is different than, you know, it's, it's different. I think that people develop at different speeds and different things can be decided on even by the same person at different stages. And so it's it's this moving, nebulous thing. So uh, we've talked about this in the past where you know, at what point is somebody able to give consent to something? Mm-hmm. And I think that the market will find a way to solve that. I don't know what the answer is going to be. But you see, you know, a 17-year-old girl and a 19-year-old boy or, or vice versa, and one of them can get in trouble because one is below some, you know, mystical... Arbitrary line. Arbitrary yeah. line. And then the other one's a, a rapist for the rest of his life. Right, and that's versa. clearly, clearly incorrect. That's clearly... Yeah, a, he's like a, a child wrong. molester. He's got a... Yeah, <laughs> He's he's a 19-year-old, he's dating a 17-year-old, and he's going to be a child molester, and he has to register as a child molester the rest of his life. What kind of justice is that? Right, yeah. Um, so in this movie, though, I'm going to make you make an answer. Um, what would you say? Does, does the child in this situation have the right to, to decide where he wants to live? 
Um, you know, I'm just thinking how I would apply the situation, and, and maybe the best course of action would be, okay, fine, you know, stay here mm-hmm. for, for the night or the two two nights or a week or whatever it is, because then they'll calm down and think rationally about it and probably come to their senses. Because I think he was making a very emotional choice in that instance, and that he would, upon coming down and reflecting, changes mind. I I think that's exactly what would happen. I first of all, I I think he has the right to self-determine where he wants to live, and he has the right to make his own decisions and make his own mistakes. Um, and I would instruct him as best I could as a parent, but I don't think he has a right to say forcibly, no, you have to go this here, here, the here or there, or with us or without us. Um, I think he would, after a couple of days, decide, you know what, I miss my family. I want to be with my family. It really wasn't as bad as I thought, or what have you. Um, so, anyway, that's my answer on that. Let's keep moving forward here. Um, well, and the I next thing that a little oh. bit, be, oh, okay. a little bit more, because you know he was like 12 or 13, but what if he was nine or seven? You know, then it gets a little, little dicier. Or what if he said, oh, I'm going to go live in this like vagrant house or live on the streets? You know. Like, the situation could be such that maybe you do need to prohibit an action that they're making that's clearly a, a choice that's going to put them in danger. Well, do you, do you actually have the right to physically assault them in order to do that? Or can you convince them with your words? Or are they just, do you think that they're just not old enough to converse and understand your words? I think there are moments where they are unable to understand because they're, they're emotional. Well, moments is one thing, but, I mean, just incapable entirely. And we're not talking about, like, a, an autistic invalid or whatever. And I'm not saying autistic people are invalid, but we're talking about someone you can't reason with. Are you saying that a nine-year-old you just can't reason with? You can't sit sure down that, and explain to them, yeah, if you go and live in this broken-down, rusty, old, abandoned house, things probably aren't going to be super great. Well, I, I think that the, the amount of um, reasonability, if that's the word, increases as they mature and develop. Sure. Uh, our three-and-a-half-year-old, you know, sometimes we need to be somewhere or we need to go somewhere or leave somewhere, and she refuses, well, we still have to do it. And unfortunately, that means it's, you know, we got to pick her up. Okay, so you are making an argument for force being necessary. At times, unfortunately, I mean, it's not a, uh, you know, it's not an escalated like violent. We're going to hurt you, force. It's it's more of a no. You've got to you know get in the car. We can't stay where we are. You know, we're out at this grocery store. We can't stay here. We <laughs> we have to go home. You know, or we're at Grandma's house, and you got to go home. you got to get in the car. Okay. So, but you're talking about a three-and-a-half-year-old. You're not right. talking about a nine-year-old. Yeah, but we're just pulling numbers out of a hat at this point. And, and yeah, that's true. And there, there's a, you know, it's not a definite, like, once they're seven, you can do this. Every okay, so you're giving Vigo a pass in this situation, then. You're saying that... He has every right in the world to just grab him by the neck and scruff of the neck and then drag him on the bus. No, I didn't say that. I said that 
if I were in that situation, I would say, okay, you want to stay here, that's fine. Because the kid. But you're saying that there would be situations where you could just grab him by the scruff of the neck and drag him on the bus, though. Like you're at a store and no, we need to leave. Unless you can just pick him up. If you're strong enough to pick up a 12 year old boy, I assume he is. Yeah, I don't know, man. This is a tough, tough area. And I struggle with, with contemplating it. Like, how are we going to manage the two kids we've got once they're able to be a little bit more wild than they are now? Mm-hmm. Okay, well, unless you have an, a definitive answer, you want to move on. You can keep talking about this part. No, we can move on. Let's move on. Uh, a non-answer from me, sir. All right. All right, so the next thing that happens is that the kid runs out of the room, and Vigo goes to leave after the kid, and Grandpa shoots an arrow at Vigo. And Vigo goes, what the hell? You just shot an arrow at me. And the Grandpa says, well, I wasn't trying to hit you. If I wanted to hit you, I would have hit you. Um, this, to me, is completely unacceptable. I don't really understand it. It seems like kind of out of character. A little bit. Not that he's not willing to use violence, obviously. He's willing to call the police on Big O. But it's kind of weird that all of a sudden he's in a situation that didn't require it at all. He just pulls out a bow and arrow and fires an arrow at him in order to get his attention. It seemed it seemed kind of weird. What did you think about this? Yeah, that was the, the arrows that were given to Relian as a gift on Noam Chomsky Day. The bow, I believe, was the the older kid. And yeah, Bo is his name. Uh, Boella Bodevin. or Boelion or whatever his name was, but it shortens the bow. I think it was Bodevin. Bodevin. Yeah, there you go, Bodevin or something like that, yeah. Yeah, and, and that was interesting because all the kids have a unique in-the-world name, like no other, or they at least attempted to give them a name that no one else would have. Which is cool. Right. But weird. Cool but weird. But yeah, the the grandpa shooting the arrow at him seemed very unnecessary, but he was maybe doing it to emphasize his seriousness of the situation. Because he clearly did not like Vigo. And he blamed right. him for his daughter's death. And he has his grandson coming to him, getting away from Vigo, so... I, I could foresee him being in a, you know, very defense of my son or my grandson's situation against a, a father figure that I do not like, who I blame for the death of my own only child. Like, yeah, that's that's emotional. That's there, There's some issues there, I think. Okay, well, so you think he was acting in defense of his grandchild? Well, not in that particular instance. I think maybe he had a, an overall sense of defending his grandchild. And shooting the arrow was like putting an emphasis on that point of, hey, I'm serious, don't fuck with me. Because, uh-huh. uh, you know, he did not shoot him, and, and I think he did not attempt to shoot him with the arrow. He no, but, I mean, anytime you're pointing anything in anyone's general direction, anything could happen, and you could accidentally hit them. Sure. Even if yes. you didn't attend it. it. It was certainly not the safe or wise thing to do. <laughs> and I, I would be pissed off if someone shot an arrow near me uh, to try to prove some, you know, some point. So anyway, okay, so then the grandpa kind of launches into a tirade. 
about Vigo's parenting. And at this point, I want to ask you what you think of Vigo's parenting. And this is a broad question. You can name specifics, whatever. But Grandpa argues that Vigo is teaching the kids to steal and that they shouldn't have real weapons at their age. He makes the point that, hey, you gave them real weapons on Noam Chomsky Day and says that he's, he's a child abuser and that they're unprepared for the real world, the quote-unquote real world, whatever that is. People keep saying that. And that he intends to file for custody of the children. Um, and then he calls the police and says that a prowler is on his property and that he says that Vigo better be able to explain Riley's Ryland's injuries, like his, his hurt hand, and that he's got cuts and scrapes, and Vigo's like, yeah, everybody's got cuts and scrapes. That's just a thing that people have. Um, but anyway, um, do, you, do you side with Grandpa's? Because some of his arguments are, eh, I can see where he's coming from, especially with the stealing, of course. Yeah. Um, not so much about the child abuse, and I'm I'm iffy on the real world thing. Um, just because you reject modern society, and there are plenty of things to reject about it, especially the love of violence um, and the total acceptance of it and the acceptance of authority. Um, yeah, there's not necessarily everything to love, but at the same time, people identify that we're a social animal and that you kind of have to, if you want to be a part of the world, have to kind of conform to it a little bit because um, there are social norms and so on and so forth. So all that laid down, what do you think of Vigo's parenting as a parent? Do you think it's child abuse? I mean, setting aside the whole kids to steal thing, do you think the the kids getting hurt, the... Um, not preparing them for the quote-unquote real world, the the weapons thing. What do you think? The removing them from, you know, society. Uh, I, I don't really have an issue with much of what he says other than his promotion of, of training them on how to steal and... Yeah imparting his philosophy which is very incorrect and this is a little bit of a gray area because you know I believe that my philosophy is correct and I wish to impart that on my children or at least provide them with materials and you know guidance and response to questions that are related to the philosophy that I hold but Vigo would say the same about what he was doing mm -hmm. uh, I happen to know or think that he was incorrect in that uh, and, you know, it's hard to say I I know, but I do know, right? Like, there is the calculation problem. There is the incentive problem. There is the unseen consequences of actions. There is the immorality of using force to get what you want. Like, these are core principles that are violated in Vigo's philosophy that I, right. from my perspective, which I believe is... Universal in in these very narrow respects that that call his actions and his philosophy um, you know, to be immoral and wrong. Mm -hmm. So is it child abuse? Uh, well, no, not not child abuse. Because this the issue is the grandfather claiming custody over the children on the grounds that these kids are being abused. 
Yeah, I mean, the so, only real thing I think... Is he a bad parent? Got, I think the only thing the grandfather's got is the theft thing. Like, teaching them to steal. Mm-hmm. But if that, if that was the case, then every statist parent would be an unfit parent. <laughs> well, you know, in, in a certain respect, they, they kind of are if they're going to promote statism. Not that there's anything that you or I or anyone could or should or would do about it. Right. So, did you did you think he was a good parent? I, I thought he was. I, th- I thought he was doing the best he could with what he knew, and then he was yeah. actually an amazing parent as far as that was concerned. Very involved. He was very uh, caring towards his kids. He he was very interested in providing them opportunities to learn things. He obviously loved them. Uh, so it, I, I I really think that he was. Like you said, doing the best that he could, and probably doing more than most parents would. Right. Yeah, I, just because I mean, from the grandparents' perspective, just because you disagree with someone's lifestyle and their philosophy, it doesn't give you the right to point a gun in their face and say, you know, you're doing it wrong. I'm going to take all your kids from you. That's it gets a little bit sticky and iffy if you truly believe that there's abuse going on. But I, uh, from watching the movie, I did not get that. The, yes, there are dangers in the world. Yes, the children will get bumps and scrapes and whatever, learning and training. That's just part of being alive, part of making little mistakes and learning. And you don't necessarily want to remove all danger and threats in the world, you know, in, in the, you know like raising your kids in like a little bubble. Because then when they do get out into the real world, are they really prepared? Because the world is a dangerous place. So who was actually preparing their children better? I would argue that Vigo was, even with the lack of socialization. Because i got to say that, you know, American culture, there's good things about it, and then there's a lot of not good things about it. And it, those things aren't all solved just by putting in them some sort of government indoctrination camp. Spoiler alert. No, I, I think none of those things are solved. In fact, they're uh, made worse. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, I, you know, I try to look at the situation from the perspective of the grandparents who were not privy to seeing the first part of the movie. <laughs> yeah. You know, so from their perspective, they see that this hippie dude marries their daughter. They don't like him. Right. They have a bunch of kids. They move out to the woods. She quits being a lawyer. Mm-hmm. And then she sends them, you know, different communications letters when she's manic or when she's depressed. And she, they're getting all these mixed messages and they think that, you know, something terrible is happening where, where they are living. And then when the kids are around them for the first time ever... They've got bruises and cuts and scrapes and, you know, fractured wrist or whatever uh, Relian had. You know, it's not hard to imagine them thinking that they are trying to protect the children. Right. So, so you think that they were acting defensively, like involving the state and using police violence defensively to protect somebody who's being aggressed against? 
No, no. I think um, that him shooting the arrow at Vigo and then calling the police and saying, oh, there's some random prowler in our yard was using the state as a bludgeon and then, you know, threatening to take the kids with um, lawyers was also mm-hmm. using the state as a bludgeon. Right. Um, I think that in a free society that there would have been, you know, opportunity for communication and, and remediation in regard to, you know, their concerns and working them out. Um, you know, if the police needed to be called, then call them on actual grounds, you know, on a foundation of, hey, he's here, he's not supposed to be here, his kid wants away from him, and he's trying to take the kid. And then what would the police response be in that situation? Probably to escalate the situation and and impose violence, shoot a dog or two. Um, <laughs> and then... And then take the kid and put him in some sort of uh, house, state house, state rent house, some sort of house. Yeah, foster care. So n- nothing good. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, uh, just a whole shit show right there. Okay, anyway, fast forwarding. So they did. he did call the cop. Cop does come. Um, he's outside the house looking in. Uh, the cop is leaving. And they see where Rylan is. He's up in the second floor in a room. And Vigo calls that says that his son is a prisoner and he um, dispatches his oldest daughter to climb up the house and to retrieve him, to essentially free him. Now, this is a little bit hard for me to stomach saying that his kid was a prisoner there when he clearly wanted to be there. Um, and she ends up falling, and the next scene is they rush her to a hospital, and Vigo's, you know, very visibly upset, and he has this kind of crisis of conscience. Um, the doctor asks him, you know, what was your daughter doing on the roof? And he lies and says that she was playing knowing that if he told the truth, that the doctor has some sort of obligation, you know, to report it to the police. Um, Then the doctor goes on to explain how lucky the girl was to not be paralyzed. He comments that she's in incredibly great shape, but, you know, she could have easily be paralyzed or even killed due to her injury. So Vigo has this big crisis of conscience, and this is the big turning point in the character of Viggo Mortensen's character, um, where everything before that, he was very much defending his lifestyle. But now that this thing has happened, he's calling it all into question. And he feels very guilty about me almost getting her killed. Um, so he takes the kids back to the grandparents' house to live. Now, do you have any issues with any of this, Daniel? What, what were your thoughts on this whole scene? This is a tough one because it totally depends on how much guilt he feels for, you know, sending his his daughter up there and she ends up getting injured. And it does seem to be a turning point for him in that he realizes that 
that in that particular situation that he was putting his child in danger, and so he vows to himself to never put them in danger again. And yeah. maybe that shakes his confidence in his parenting to the point where he agrees with the grandfather that, okay, maybe I actually am a bad parent, and if you're willing to take them, then maybe that's a better environment for them. Right. Uh, I understand I, all, you know, people need to have arcs, but was this a believable turn for you? This part was was more believable than what happens later. Okay. Agreed. I could see, you know, your kid is nearly killed or paralyzed. That's going to shake you. True, but one of his kids could have fallen during the mountain climbing. Would he have been equally as shaken? Probably not as equally shaken. I think that this was a little bit more... There was a lot of other factors going on, like mother had just died. They're having this inter-family situation with the grandparents and Relian wanting to be there. So I think that had this happened on one of their, you know, trainings, it would have been more of a, oh, you got injured on a training. Yeah. Versus this whole family, you know, relationship, emotional issue. Yeah. How this relates to anarchy, I don't really know, but it's about the movie, so. It's about the movie. Uh, yeah, we still do analyze movies from a believability, from a character standpoint. From time to time, I like to do that as a hopeful writer. Um, so for me, it, it was a little bit convenient. Like, it seemed to happen really quick. Sometimes things can happen that suddenly change your character. Like you see new information and all of a sudden you're different. But rarely, and I understand you condense things from movies for time considerations. But it seemed like a really quick turn to just throw away years and decades of philosophy and belief to all of a sudden say, oh no, I'm actually a danger to these kids. I need to be separated from them because I made one poor decision. And if I can make one poor decision and almost get somebody killed, then I can't just be, I just can't be trusted with them ever. That is such a quitter attitude. That is, oh, I made one bad decision. I'm the worst person in the world. I'm a danger <laughs> to my children who I, I just, I, I didn't buy it. Um, I could see being emotional and making kind of an emotional response and saying, oh my God, I almost got my kid killed. I should never do that again. But to call into question his whole parenting philosophy and his whole training of his children and whatnot and just even, even, even being a part of their life. Are you kidding? He's a fantastic part of their life. They just got done talking about how they just lost their mom. They can't lose him too. And now he's willingly taking him out of his family's life. Now I'm willingly going to just leave. I'm going to leave you. You just lost your mom. Now you're going to lose your dad because I made a bad decision. Really? Suck it up, pussy. Yeah, and let's talk about the decision. Do you think that it was a bad decision to send his daughter up there? Yeah, I think it was a terrible decision. Um, I think he should have realized that the kid would have, you know, missed his family and wanted to come back and live with the family. And if not, um you know, maybe counsel him as much as I could, but at the end of the day, he's old enough and he's definitely smart enough 
and respectfully make his own decisions um, and make his own mistakes. And I think the grandparent would have respected it if he said, you know, I want to go back to my family. Um, so, yeah, sending his daughter up onto the roof. Um, in fact, first of all, I would have gone myself if I thought that this was something that needed to happen. Um, saying that he was a prisoner up there when he clearly wasn't, and then sending your daughter to do your dirty work, um, I had real issues with. I mean, especially since we see in the early in the movie that, you know, he's perfectly physically capable of doing all the things his children do. Um, he's in just as good a shape. Um, we even get a nude shot of him. <laughs> Thanks, movie. It was a funny scene, but, you know, we got a nude shot of him. And he's just like, yep, got a penis. <laughs> What's up? <laughs> that was pretty funny. Um, so, yeah, uh, I thought it was a bad decision. But to have that reverse your entire life's work was a bit too convenient um, for, you know, I, I, obviously if the writer wanted it to happen for a plot point, but uh, for me, it seemed like a, a convenient uh, change that um, I did just, just, just didn't buy. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to say that I think it was a little bit more believable to me just because of all the different emotional things that were going on leading up mm-hmm. to it. Okay. Uh, I think, you know, you lose your partner, the, the mother of your children. You're told by your sister that you're abusing the kid. You're told by the grandfather you're abusing your kid. One of them is def- openly defiant to you several times and then runs away. I think, yeah, it's believable that you're going to question your methods after all of those events happening on rapid succession. Okay. So did you agree with his decision to send his daughter up on the roof? No, I think that was terrible. <laughs> okay. Okay, good. Uh, but she was willing to do it, and she did not blame him after it happened. True. Um, she was more than willing to do it. She thought that she was doing good to try to go get the kid, uh, Relian, you know, from up right. there. But it wasn't as if they could have just waited it until morning or, the, you know, the next day and talked to him. Yeah. So I think it was a uh, foolish dis- decision on their part. Right. And it's not to say that people don't make foolish decisions, but it did. For me, it was more, seemed like um, more of a, a plot point than uh, uh, an actual decision someone would make. But anyway. What do, we, what do we say about that? It's in the script. That's right. It's in the script. So after the crisis of conscience, Vigo takes the kids back to the grandparents' house to live. Uh, Grandma shows Vigo the letter that is the right quote wrote saying that um, you know you can burn the other letter I wrote I want to stay here we've made this amazing thing our kids are so awesome and they're going to be philosopher kings Um, her actual quote is like they made a paradise out of Plato's Republic um, and that we are defined by our actions not our words so we're doing great things out here and um, and he, he gets that letter but he still decides to leave even though his wife is saying, yes, we're doing great things. It's still not enough. He's still like, no, I'm terrible. I'm a terrible person. I'm leaving these kids to live with their grandparents. Um, so he goes out, and he's talking to the kids. And he's like, I'm out of here. I can't put you in danger. I almost got you killed. And the kids are like, we can't live here. This house is a vulgar display of wealth. <laughs> Uh, what do you think of that line, Daniel? Mmm, so juicy. 
Yeah, it was, it was very much a, well, they have more than they need, therefore it should be expropriated from them. Yeah. How dare they provide enough value to afford such a thing? Yeah, it's a very commie, commie mar- remark, and it goes back to the uh, inconsistency in their philosophy, apparently, you know? Yeah. There's so many contradictions in this, and, and I think we touched on this previously, but Mao wrote some philosophical works about how everything is contradiction, and we contrasted that with Ayn Rand, who said that contradictions cannot exist. Uh-huh. And maybe on a deeper level than I'm capable of understanding or articulating, but maybe that is like one of the fundamental differentiators between believing in, in individuals versus collective. Uh-huh. So you feel free to unpack that if, if you've got the chops for it, my man. No. Not right now. It's it's past midnight, and uh, I don't have the chops currently to unpack all that and get into that. Plus, uh, this is uh, running super long as it is. We're probably going to have to crack this into three parts, but um, uh, let's just move on. It's not not a whole ton more. Um, right, you want to power through, or do you want to you want to cut or? No, no, no. We we should we should we should just power through. Um, we could we could either have a wrap up episode, or you could divide this into two parts. But um, so so he's he's talking to the kids. Uh, I almost got you killed. I need to leave. Um, and the kids are like, "Why can't we stay with you?" And he'll say, "Because I will ruin your lives." Um, and then he just gets up and leaves. And then Grandpa he says, "Like you're doing the right thing." Um, and Vigo just drives away. So then he sh- goes, stops at a rest stop, and he buys a razor or a shaver and a razor, and he shaves his face, and he's kind of sitting at this picnic table. And the kids climb out of the, the smuggling hold in the bus. And they had stowed away, and they're waiting to surprise them at a later point. And the middle son, the Ryland, is, had come with them. And he says, I don't hate you, Dad. I just wish you'd help Mom. And Dad says, me too. And then they hug. And um, the kids are just like, we want to go get Mom. And Dad says, no, I can't ever put you in danger again. And then at this point, Ryland does this Chomsky quote, and I will read it here verbatim. If you assume that there is no hope, then you guarantee that there will be no hope. If you assume that there is an instinct for freedom, that there are opportunities to change things, then there is a possibility that you can contribute to making a better world. Um, And then that convinces him, that quote, changes dad's mind and so then they go off and uh, dig up mom's grave um, that's a terrible quote Dan's got something to say about the quote go for it Dan I mean they are Chomsky lovers in this in this movie whoever made this movie oh maybe, yeah maybe they're related to him I don't know but, uh, that's basically the, the Gretzky quote where you miss all the shots you don't take but put in the context of, you know, you need to whine to your masters to <laughs> grant you the freedoms so you need to protest and whine about it. Yeah, he's very much a uh, political activist kind of guy. Yeah, so I guess it just rubbed me the wrong way. Right. Because I was looking at it in that perspective, and maybe that's not exactly how he meant it, but 
you know, I have, I have a certain lens through which I view the world, and I'm perfectly happy with that lens, the non-aggression principle. Uh-huh. I think it uh, works wonders in being able to understand complex events. But yeah, this quote seemed to be a ripoff of several other people's quotes and was just a justification for um, you know, protest and political active, activism, uh, begging your masters for rights and privileges that they can bestow upon you. Right. Which seems strange to if he if he claims the title of anarchist that you would that you would uh, seek to beg for being treated slightly better by your masters as opposed to not even recognizing that they are your masters to begin with. So that changes Vigo's mind and the dad and they all go and they dig up mom's grave. And then there's a uh, an emotional scene, final scene, kind of final scene, where they drive her back to the Pacific Northwest, and she's in there in the bus, and all the kids are crying and you know putting flowers in her hair and that sort of thing. And they go out to like the seaside, and they build a pyre and they put her on there, and they say their goodbyes, and they dance and they sing and they play uh, "Sweet Child of Mine." which is apparently a favorite song. Then they um, they take her ashes to SeaTac, Seattle-Tacoma Airport, for those not in the know, and they go to a toilet, and they say goodbye, Mom, and then they flush her, flush her down the toilet. And then the oldest son, Bo, um, after he's like, he's shaved his head now, so... Whatever. Anyway, um, he leaves on a flight to Namibia instead of going to college. He wants to. He says he just put his finger on a map and he decided to go to Namibia. Um, and then the film ends controversially for me and for Daniel also. Um, Steve is now a chicken coop, and the family now lives in a house, and it looks like I don't know any number of like small farmhouses around. Pacific Northwest. I mean, there's a ton of these in like Stanwood and Mount Vernon and these kinds of things in the Skagit Valley. Um, and the kids are now going to school. And it seems like a public school because there's like a bus. They say the bus is coming to get you in such and such amount of time. And dad's like packing the kids' lunches and that sort of thing. So at least they're not eating the school lunches. But they're now going to the state indoctrination camps. And is this like the biggest betrayal of like what what is this what his whole philosophy was that you can learn all the stuff you know you don't need to be taught by these state institutions and whatnot but because of this experience he's decided that no the kids need to go to these public schools even though even though they perfectly illustrated you know how dumb the kids are that go to public schools. <laughs> they just don't know anything. So let me hear Daniel's rant about this. You know, had, as we wrap had we, up, had we continued this show yesterday, I might have had a slightly different rant because now I'm sort of saying, no matter which way he went on this, because they're only so inconsistent in this movie. There's so many contradictions in this movie. Yeah, he could he could do this because he could say, well. They're sticking it to the man because they're 
I've already taught them so much, and now they can go to public school uh, because my sister and my father-in-law have both suggested it, and they think that it, it's good for the kids and I'm doing something wrong, and because I've been putting them in danger, maybe I should listen to them. And so he can sort of have his cake and eat it too in this respect but because he's, he's not anti-state. He's, he's anti-consumerism. So going sending them to the state school isn't that big of a deal to him. Now, when I first watched the movie, I was, like, taken aback by this. I was like, what the fuck? Like, he's been teaching them in an unschooling environment. You know, they're obviously well-educated. They know a lot of things, survival skills. They're in great shape. They, they're well-read. They're intellectual. They're analytical. Like, why would he go back on that? Yeah. Why? What what are they what are they gaining now? I think it's that social interaction that. He, but they could move into the city, but he doesn't necessarily have to put them in the indoctrination camps. Yeah, I, I think he's doing it probably in response to the prodding by his relatives and the kids saying that you know we feel weird. Now I'm not saying that that's a correct thing. Uh, I don't intend to put my kids in school, um, and and I think that they're going to be perfectly fine socialized. They're going to, you know, interact with people in daily life, and not be pigeonholed into a you're a third grader, you're a fifth grader. You only interact with people who are one or two years older or younger than you. Right. You know, they're going to look at people as as people. But we're not as Hopefully. extreme as, as the Vigo character was moving them out to the woods where they literally lived in the woods and lived off the land. Yes. So you think this is more of an understandable turn at the end here? Well, because the movie is very much like happy ending, right? The, the music and the vibe you get is very much like, oh, they're content. They're sitting around the kitchen table. You get the music that's like all happy and swelling, and you get that emotional, you know, that orchestra music. Like, yay. Whereas I was like, what? <laughs> this is what you did? After, I mean, it's one thing to have a character grow and learn things. It's another thing to establish a character for decades and then have them completely reverse ship because of one event. And I understand you have to have arcs. Gotcha. Um, I would have been, I would have, I was, it isn't the ending I would have written. Um, maybe you have them um, move to a place where there are more people and they can socialize in a public setting with their neighbors or, you know, other people their age or any, any number of ages that they wish to socialize with or they can join groups or whatever, hobbies that they have, interests they follow. Um, but, and, and I understand that they're not anarchists. They don't, you know, they don't, they don't really have an issue with going to like public school. But for all the reasons outlined, when he was comparing and contrasting his kids versus the dumb kids, and yes, he's still in part of their lives and you can still teach them and you can still contrast the things that they're quote unquote learning in public school. But it seems like a bit of a betrayal to all the philosophy that he had and held as one of his core values to then hand off your children 
to these government workers to quote unquote educate. Yeah, that was my initial read of it when I first saw the film, but now, like I said, once I've had a little bit more reflection, it sort of aligns with um, his thinking. He doesn't have any distaste for the state. He has a distaste for consumerism and capitalism. So it sort of lines up a little better than when I first... I mean, I was I was unsatisfied with that ending, yes. I agree. Okay. Um but now that we've, you know, we've talked about this for three hours now, uh, I'm starting to come to realize that it's not, it's not me in that situation saying I would never put my kids in this in the school system. You know, even though yeah. I identify with Vigo's character of wanting to teach his kids and, and facilitate their own educational experiences, because I, I want to do the same. So when I was watching the film, I was likening myself to that, and then he completely betrays that view at the end my well and assume my my i assumed his situation by myself you know on my own self if that makes i see sense. what you're saying but but that's not entirely well didn't you notice like though that the kid is reading like a, a coloring book like a picture book he goes from reading like some advanced shit on their own to now being in like fourth grade and learning like one plus one is two and your, your times tables and like shit that's way beneath him. And he's like reading this, like this coloring book. Yeah. I didn't look that closely at what, what the kid was looking at, but yeah, they were all reading something around the breakfast table waiting for the bus. Yeah. And apparently you, t- you took the time to, <laughs> to actually look at it and be like, Hey, that's a downgrade from what you were reading around the campfire at the beginning of the movie. Yeah. Big time downgrade. I mean, you, I don't. You can't really see exactly what they're looking at. Like, you can't like super con- compare and contrast it. But it sure looked, from what I could see, that it was a super downgrade. And you know, you also run into the idea of, okay, I'm putting my kids into school now. Okay, you're gonna judge what grade they go into based on your standards, right? You're 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 handing off. You're putting your kids in somebody else's judgment of where they deserve to be based on like what their age. So even though this kid like reads at like a 12th grade level, Oh, you're in fourth grade now. Cause you're eight and you get to learn shit that you learned, you know, years ago and you're going to learn and you're going to be so fucking bored for the next forever that you're in this school. What a waste of time for you. Poor kid. So I did not see this like happy music at the end being like convincing at all. I was like, fuck, these kids are screwed. <laughs> they're going to be so goddamn bored. Yes, they're going to like meet friends and probably be disappointed in how dumb their friends are and how shallow and whatever. Maybe they'll make some good friends and meet some really good people too. But educationally, I was just like dreading it. I mean, maybe they'll have one or two good teachers. But, you know, as with government, you can't just get rid of good teachers. You can't just choose to send your kids to, you know, this good school and have this good teacher here and that good teacher there. It's like a total mixed bag. You get somebody who, like, stumbles in drunk, like I had. Not naming names. He's probably dead now anyway. It doesn't matter. Probably died of cirrhosis. Yeah, it is It is an interesting situation. Uh, 
because they they were all about sticking it to the man, and of course they meant somebody offering you something voluntarily. When yeah. the man really is the government, you know, the state is the man. It's and 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 in a way they are anti-authority early on, like with the cops and all those things. But then they end up putting their kids in the the man's indoctrination camp. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it is another contradiction. And in a movie, as I was saying earlier, (laughs) I can sort of see more more of it because he misplaces who the man is. He he places the man as the private sector versus the state. Like he ends up being a big fan of the state. And to your point about you know, the kids are going to be bored being in school, learning or being subjected to things that they already know. I think you're right, but the snapshot that we see is the beginning of them going to school, not the, you know, result of them being in there for a while. So maybe it is happy right. initially. I would like a I would like a follow-up movie, like yeah. five years later. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's true that he's still involved in their life, and he can still assign them extra reading or whatever. But in order to get the the gold star on their foreheads, they're going to have to do the assignments, and they're going to have to do the tests and whatever. And yes, they'll probably just breeze through them because they already know this crap, or maybe they hopefully skipped some of the propaganda bullshit. Um, and hopefully, he'll be there to you know help them, whatever, and they'll use critical thinking and. They'll definitely be in a better position than I was at the time, absorbing a lot of that propaganda. Um, but they'll still be subjected to it. Me, you know, I think I've mentioned this many times, but I would love to go back to one of those classrooms and just rip the material to shreds and just destroy what the professors take talking about, and they would hate me. And I would love it. Oh, that's a fantasy I have. Yeah, anyway. you would not be in there for very long, man. They would, they would expel you. <laughs> oh, they would. Yeah, my money would not be worth it to them, and they would shout me out and shout me down. But I wouldn't care. Doesn't matter. It, it would be, it would be awesome. It would be totally worth it. But so anyway, what do you that's say, man, about. Have we, have we wrapped up this movie? Do you want to? Uh... Do a summation of of your overall impressions and final thoughts, and then we can wind this one down. We've been going for quite a while, my man. I know this will this will be a three parter. I think you should split this in two. Um, uh, good movie, definitely. I think this is our a record for how much to talk about a movie. Um, you know, when I first saw it, I was just like, we got to talk about this. This is totally made for us. Um, just so nuanced and so many different contradictions, so many issues that um, are affecting us right now. I mean, you're, you're talking about unschooling or homeschooling your children versus, um, you know, the pressures that you are on you to put them into public schools. So that was an issue. Um, and, you know, the, the, the stigmatisms that, you know, homeschool kids are weird or that they're not getting the tools they need to survive and exceed in the world when they're often better prepared, Um, even though, yes, they are oftentimes a little bit unsocialized, which isn't, in my mind, necessarily a bad thing, but it will feel a little bit weird. But guess what? That happens to everybody. 
everybody's going to feel out of touch. And maybe you need at least one part in, the, in your world, in your lifetime, where you do feel a part of the culture, to feel that sense of belonging. And then as you get older and you lose that sense of belonging to the culture, you can have some perspective on it so that, yes, I, I was once part of it and now I can reject it openly from a learned and wisdom perspective. Um, so I don't, I don't begrudge people that want to, um, you know, feel left out and they want to be a part of it. So, uh, you know, and I don't have any right to tell you you can't. Um, but I don't begrudge the father for raising those children the best he knew how. Um, it's, you know, being a parent, from what I understand, it's a lot of trial and error. And we're not, you know, you're not born an expert. Um, and there are all the situations, all the preparation you can do for all the different situations, you just can't do enough. You just do your best. And it's hard to criticize somebody when they're in the trenches. You can do a lot of uh, Monday morning quarterbacking. Um, so in that sense, I try to give uh, Vigo's character a more of a pass. Um, but for me, the ending did seem like a big betrayal, and the turn seemed convenient. Um, but overall, I thought it was well acted, fairly well written for all the contradictions and weirdness. Um, it did seem to be, you know, kind of a fairly true, you know, you got some, some hippies living out in the woods, and it's kind of a fish-out-of-water story. They come back into the the quote-unquote real world and they would make these kind of weird observations and funny observations and um, people would look at them a little bit weird and different because they are a little bit weird and different because they haven't been indoctrinated into the culture so overall I totally recommend this movie um, if we haven't you know convinced you by now um, I don't think my little summation here at the end is going to convince you um, but uh, really good even if you don't obviously agree like we don't with the philosophy uh, it's still great to have you know talking points holy crap you could sit down and watch this movie with your family and just talk and really bond over what you thought it meant and all the different philosophy at play and all the different pressures and situations so yeah totally good even if I don't uh, fully endorse what was said or we're done Well, well done. Yeah, uh, my final thoughts are you know similar to yours. I think it was entertaining. I really liked how he took uh, his his relationship with the kids in a very straightforward manner and was you know very uh, nonchalant about telling them how things actually were. You know, he didn't yeah. pussyfoot around. He didn't sugarcoat things. He was like, "Yep, this is what happened, and we're going to deal with it and move on." And I think that he was, like we said earlier, very involved in their lives and very caring and wanted to do what was best for them, provide as much educational opportunity and training opportunity as possible for the kids, and did a lot more than most parents would probably do. Uh, and I initially was disappointed in, in him sending the kids to the indoctrination camps at the end. But I can kind of understand now a little bit more about why he would do that because his problem is not with the state his problem is with consumerism and so you know sending them to school especially when he's already trained them as well as he did might seem like the next logical thing 
considering his relatives were all telling him that was the, the right thing to do, that he needed to do that. All right. So, so yeah. yeah, that that was Captain Fantastic 2016, Viggo Mortensen. Go out and check it out. Thanks for listening. It's been an epic an epic uh, breakdown, and uh, we appreciate you sticking with us for the whole thing. Yeah, this may or may not be a three-parter or, or maybe just a uh, short first part and a long second part. But either way, if you stuck with us this long, let me tell you a little bit more about We Are the Actual Anarchy podcast brought to you by the fine folks at readrothbard.com. Check out actualanarchy.com, which presently will take you to read redirect you to readrothbard.com. We get books, articles, and lectures by Maria Ann Rothbard. We run the Enemy of the State podcast, lectures by Murray Rothbard. We run the Read Rothbard podcast, which is audiobooks of articles and books by Murray Rothbard, and the actual Anarchy podcast, which is us talking about movies from a Rothbardian anarcho-capitalist perspective uh, focused on the NAP and Austrian economics. So that's a little bit about what we do here. And uh, since this is episode three or four at this point, and part of the new rebranding relaunch, uh, do take the time, because we're going to launch this to iTunes, subscribe, like, comment, share, rate, whatever it is you do, and look for more coming from us uh, on a weekly basis. But any little bump you can give us right here, because this is going to be all launched together. So if you if you binge listen to us, start start doing the uh, the feedback, because we would really... Appreciate that. It'll help us get us higher in the rankings and more and more people will be able to discover us and hopefully stick with us as we continue exploring movies from uh, the actual anarchy perspective. That's right. And if you, uh, you disagree with what we have to say, we'd, still, we'd love to hear from you. Or if you agree, if you have any kind of feedback at all, we'd love to hear from you. Because we claim that we are the actual anarchy that's a bold claim to make. And if you disagree, we'd love to hear about it. But thanks for listening. That's right. We challenge all you fake-ass anarchists to come at us, bro, intellectually that's speaking. Good. Intellectually Indeed. speaking. But, uh, yeah, thank you for joining us for this third and or fourth show covering uh, Catherine Fantastic. We'll come back at you next week with another show. Not sure what movie we're going to do just yet, but we will come back at you with something in the meantime, check out actualanarchy.com, readrothbar.com, and all the rest. So thank you and good night. And peace out. Take care of your sexy bodies. Do some training. We love you. Chipmunks. C H I P M U N K. We're the chipmunks. Guaranteed to brighten your day. Do 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 do